Hey, everybody, it is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, and today I'm just going to give the floor to my guest to introduce himself and our subject, and we'll get right into the interview. My name is John Moalem. I'm a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine, and I'm the author of the new book, Wild Ones, a sometimes dismaying, weirdly reassuring story about looking at people, looking at animals in America. Can you uh, summarize it more quickly than your subtitle does? No, that was my <laughs> that was my best attempt to communicate what this book is about. Uh, it took a little bit more words than than I expected, but there it is. Well, give it a shot. Sell it. Oh boy! Uh, <laughs> you know, I wanted to write a book about animals uh, that was just as much about how we imagine animals uh, as the animals themselves, and so a lot of it focuses on endangered species recoveries and the, the sort of individual characters doing that work and their idiosyncratic relationships to, to these animals and the way they think about the work they're doing. But a lot of it is also just about the ways animals pop up in, in popular culture and in childhood, the animals we give to our kids. Uh, so it's sort of comparing those two animal worlds, the imaginary and the real. So it's about animals in the, quote, wild, out there in nature, and it's about animals in our heads. <laughs> and you have a really interesting... Um, trailer for this book. I don't usually even look at book trailers. Like, you know, I think, why do people need to create little videos about their book? But yours I looked at. And yours, if I'm not mistaken, really does summarize something about your book very, very concisely. It's you and your daughter, whose name is? Isla. Isla. How'd you get that name? Uh, oh, that's a whole long story. Okay. We don't need to go into she's, that. <laughs> she's not named after the Scottish island famous for its scotch. No. Well, it, it, there's Scottish blood in my wife's family, so that had something to do with it. But, yeah, I mean, I'd like to say we named after a scotch, but that's not exactly <laughs> the truth. But, um. You, too. She's about four years old? Yeah, she'll be five this summer, yeah. Uh, getting in a car in San Francisco, heading north across the Golden Gate to a body of water that mm, might be Tamales Bay or someplace like that. Yeah. It is. I think so, yeah. Okay. <laughs> you get out of the car in this natural environment, and there on the shores of this body of water are not living animals, but stuffed animals. Right. A pastoral of, of <laughs> stuffed animals. Uh, sort of there's a little bear on a branch and a bald eagle. And uh, yeah, it was made by a, a filmmaker friend of mine here named Sachi Cunningham. And I think that's really it. I mean, I, I could have probably not explain this uh, until after I'd seen the trailer, but I think that's really what it is. I, I took a series of uh, fieldwork trips out into the wild to basically look at the way people were imagining animals and not necessarily at the animals them, themselves, and that these images we have and these ideas we have about uh, the animals out on the land really color our perception about it, it actually blind us at times. Um, so that's really all we're, we're seeing. Yeah, there's a suggestion in that video that we never really do look at animals. We always look at our stories about animals. Sure. I think that, you know, and the stories that we were telling about animals right now are actually really important. It's not just sort of a cute poetic thing to say that we have ideas, you know, poetic ideas about animals. These stories, uh, you know, in a, in a world where humans are the dominant species and humans are controlling a lot of the ecological processes, it's the stories we tell about animals that the animals themselves actually depend on. They depend on our empathy and our understanding or, or our misunderstanding about, you know, how they fit into the world. Uh, so you proceed to tell your own stories in this book, and um, I would say struggle with them a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, this book is in, in part a, a story of your own struggle to get uh, a handle on all of this. But um, I want to go back in history. Um, the subtitle, again, is a sometimes dismaying, weirdly reassuring story about looking at people, looking at animals in America. 
let's take that last part first, which is in America. I want you to give us a bit of history here. Um, when our uh, fathers, um, how does the Gettysburg Address go, set forth on a new continent or sure. whatever, when they did that, what was their idea of uh, the great American wilderness? Uh, you know, America was seen, North America was seen as an incredible, uh, you know, bounteous place. I mean, Europe had pretty much obliterated a lot of its wildlife by the time the colonists came over. And the the animals, it wasn't just a matter of them being beautiful or uh, glorious. I mean, there was some of that. There's also a lot of fear of these animals, but it was just a practical matter. You needed to come into a place where there was no infrastructure, there was no general store, and you needed to be able to survive. And here were these deer just leaping out of the woods and, you know, crustaceans all up and down the coastlines. And America was just a, a pantry that was stocked for people. And you would see these letters coming back to Europe from America where people would say, you know, anyone can make it here. You can just step out of your, you know, your cabin and, and find something to eat. And really, I think you could argue that that's where this, you know, the American dream comes from, this idea that, you know, with a, just a little bit of effort, anyone can really make it here. I mean, it, we talk about that now as a philosophical thing, but really back then it was just a, a matter of supply and demand. You know, you really could technically, you know, eat and live uh, just by showing up. Just just hold your arms out and a cod would jump in. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there were also stories of people, I don't really go into this in the book, but it was so impressive and so outrageous that there were all these animals here that there were reports of, you know, mermaids and, you know, really fantastic beasts because it just seemed like, sure, why not? That's probably here too. And one of those beasts was the so-called American... Incognitum. Yes. Yeah. Tell us about him. Yeah, the American or Incognitum. Uh, <laughs> right. There were both of them. Uh, the American Incognitum was a name that uh, people gave to the mammoth. Uh, this was, you know, around the time of the Declaration of Independence, just as America was getting going, was also the time when the first mammoth uh, fossils were being discovered. And it was very confusing because people didn't understand extinction as an idea. They didn't accept the fact that species could actually go extinct. It seemed unholy. It seemed like, you know, how would God allow that to happen? So how did you reconcile these, you know, massive teeth and bones turning up with the fact that we didn't see any of these animals walking around? Well, People like Thomas Jefferson said, well, they're, they're probably just still walking around. We haven't seen two-thirds of this continent. They're probably just still out there somewhere. So when he sent Lewis and Clark uh, out west, he, he told them to keep their eyes peeled for these things. And it was a point of pride for him because, meanwhile, in Europe... Yeah, in Europe, there's a, a fellow named Count Buffon who had this... Uh, he's a very revered Enlightenment thinker, and he had a theory of American degeneracy which he basically made up whole cloth out of, out of nothing. You know, he, he made it sound very empirical, but his argument was uh, that all the animals in America were smaller and uh, less prestigious and, and less impressive than the animals in Europe. And feeble, uh, and the, the whole atmosphere here would weaken you and make you less virile, yeah? Even if you came to America from somewhere else, your, your bloodline would, would steadily uh, you know, degenerate. Um, and this theory took off, and, and his disciples, Buffon's disciples, expanded it and got even more carried away with this idea to the point where it became a real national problem. It became a problem. People didn't want to loan the U.S. government money. Um, the, you know, America was a startup, and there was a fear that they couldn't get the capital they needed because who would bet on these you know, degenerate uh, Americans? 
Uh, so Thomas Jefferson set out to uh, to disprove it. And part of his proof was going to be to produce a living uh, American incognitum, uh, a woolly mammoth, showing how virile our animals really were. Yes, he, he made a chart of uh, <laughs> where he, he collected measurements of different animals, you know, say our beaver versus your beaver. <laughs> and then uh, and, and at the top of the chart, he put the mammoth, you know, as uh, just for some wow factor, you know, that, it, that this was the biggest thing we had. Uh, he didn't have any, you know, live mammoths at that point, but he was just assuming that he could put it in that chart because it's clearly out there somewhere. So America has a stake from the very beginning in proving that it is wild and rugged. Yeah, well, in fact, they, America was trying to combat um, the, the idea that they, were, that they were wild and rugged in a bad way. They I were see. trying to embrace being wild and rugged as something positive, you know, uh-huh. something more authentic than, than Europe, where everyone was sitting around in parlors. In, in robes and wigs, like Buffon. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we start with this sort of self-created myth about America. Um, not only is it a vast wilderness, but uh, it's better than Europe's, you know, and that uh, manhood here, I mean, because it's mostly men who are concerned about this <laughs> proving themselves, right? <laughs> manhood here is sort of tested against this this rugged outdoors, yeah, and, and it's wonderful beasts. But at some point, and really it didn't take that long, we start wiping out the animals, right? I mean, the bison whose herd stretched to the horizon were knocked off really quick, and other species started to to diminish as well. Yeah, you know, by the the turn of the twentieth century, you know, by now it's very apparent that extinction is a is a real thing, and you're starting to see things like the bison or the passenger pigeon. Uh, you know, there were stories about passenger pigeon flocks uh, sweeping through towns. You know, hundreds of millions of birds that would block out the sun, and now there were almost none of them. They were almost all gone, and you start to see a real anxiety. You know, a, a sort of a turning in the character of of Americans when they thought about uh, wild animals. Uh, you know, here we sort of set out to obliterate everything in our way, and now we are very close to ha- to having done it. When does uh, something like a conservation movement begin in America? Well, you know, it's tough to say. I'd say that you know, from from the history that that I gathered, you know, what we recognize as conservation as modern conservation really started around that time in terms of both the concerns of people about you know preserving populations but also in the ways that people communicated uh, the need to save them uh, you know this is when it stopped just being a practical matter of having enough elk to hunt and there started to be a more emotional or even patriotic component to the way people talked about the uh, the issue mm-hmm. uh, so you know purple mountains majesty and fruited plains and lots of beasts really important to our heart and soul right I, I read about a fellow named William Temple Hornaday who was a, started as a taxidermist at the Smithsonian and basically through the course of his life uh, you know in the early 20th century uh, helped invent you know modern wildlife conservation really made very emotional uh, pleas, very alarmed, uh, also exaggerated pleas sometimes for what we were doing to animals, you know, even down to, um, you know, squirrels. He was very concerned about squirrel, people shooting too many squirrels. Uh, so he was basically just watching all of these different species be uh, depredated and, and eliminated, and he fought back with any tool that he had. And in this case, it was trying to interest people who weren't necessarily hunters and who maybe lived in cities uh, and never saw some of these animals, still trying to give them a stake in these animals. He was democratizing wildlife and, and saying that, you know, these are living neighbors to man. Uh, there's an aesthetic value to them or something beyond just uh, the utilitarian use. And he wrote a book that got a lot of um, play, didn't it? I mean, Our Vanishing Wildlife, is that what it was called? Our Vanishing Wildlife. He actually wrote a, a great number of books. I think that was probably his, his most successful one. Uh, and it was really just a 
a survey of what was going on at the time. Uh, you know, he, he collected letters from different people he knew from around the country uh, about, you know, what are the Sandhill Crane populations like where, where you are? How many are left? You know, one part of the book is just his compilation of all these reports. And they're all these panicked, you know, exclamation point ridden uh, uh, missives from different parts of the country saying, yo, the ra- even the rabbits are all gone. And... Uh, and Hornaday uh, put this all together and actually, you know, distributed it to the to the members of the Congress, I think, and and tried to really strike up some some alarm. Tell me about another group of people, the Nature Fakers. They were derogatorily called by some people. Sure, yeah, the Nature Fakers. This was just around the same time in the early 20th century. It was a genre of writing, basically. They called themselves uh, realistic wild animal stories. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, White Fang by Jack London is is the only one, honestly, that I'd I'd heard of before I started uh, working on the book. This this was a genre of writing that wrote stories about animals. Animals were the protagonists, and it dramatized their lives. And uh, you know, they got pretty carried away at times, uh, giving these animals uh, emotional sophistication or you know a kind of intelligence uh, that we usually associate with people. And you know, behind a lot of these stories was. Uh, I think a real urge to try to create compassion for the animals and you know establish the animals as as uh, legitimate occupants of of the country too. So they start out as ours for the taken, right? Sure. I mean ours for the uh dining room table, right? And in a brief 100 years they become something we have to start protecting and even anthropomorphizing. Yeah, you start to see the the inklings of that in any case. I mean, I think people like the nature fakers and and Hornaday, um, you know, were moving in that direction. And it was contentious. I mean, Hornaday hated the nature fakers because he thought that they were, uh, you know, he wouldn't have used this word, but but disnifying mm. basically the animals is mm. what they were doing. Um, and he felt that that was uh, doing a real disservice, too, to Americans, that it was bringing them even further away from, from the reality of wildlife. And I was interested to learn in your book also that this is the beginnings, the turn of the 19th, 20th century, of children's stuffed animals. I, I sort of would have imagined they went back for centuries, but not so. Right. Well, there's always been animal toys. There's always, uh-huh. We've always, I mean, even some of the first primitive toys that archaeologists have found uh, have, been, have been representations of animals. Um, but, it, you know, there's a long section in the book where I talk about the, um, the origins of the teddy bear and kind of natural history of the, of the teddy bear. And this happened just about the same time when uh, President Theodore Roosevelt had taken a trip to Mississippi and uh, his hunting guide had tied up a very sick, mangy-looking bear for him to shoot. And uh, Roosevelt said, you know, no thank you. He considered it unsportsmanlike. And there was a famous cartoon of this scene, which actually showed Roosevelt, you know, showing this bear mercy. And it was from that cartoon that uh, toy makers started to make uh, Teddy's Bear, named after Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, and that was really the first time that, you know, bears... Uh, you know, suddenly they, bears had been a kind of shorthand for dangers out in the wilderness. You know, there were stories about uh, boys shooting bears, and that was a feel-good story. Sure, uh, Daniel Boone killed a bar at this here tree, didn't he? Something like something that. Like that yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. Suddenly, now you had these cute stuffed bears that that were given to kids as these cuddly playthings. It was very confusing for adults. Why should my child have a have a bear, have this beast instead of a human doll? Uh, of course, at this time, a lot of Americans were leaving the countryside and going into cities, so they were losing touch with bears as a threat and maybe beginning to get a little nostalgic. 
Absolutely. I think there was real nostalgia. And the nostalgia also came from the fact that this was a time when bears were really just being obliterated all around the country. Um, you know, most predators were wolves and cougars. There was a division of the federal government whose job it was to eliminate these things because they were seen as, you know, both threats and just inconveniences for, for people who had to live around them. Uh, so really, at, by the time Roosevelt went on that bear hunt, uh, you know, bears were primed to be seen as a kind of a victim. Um, you know, we we turned them into underdogs all of a sudden instead of instead of threats. So I sort of argue in the book that you know, this is what made the teddy bear possible. It's only when we've uh, you know subdued nature that we can start to feel that it's you know cute and, uh, and helpless. It. Exactly. Yeah. Was the uh, woman's lingerie article the teddy also named after Roosevelt? That's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, did the public know what Roosevelt actually did or had done to that bear after he spared his life? Uh, at the time, the public did know. So after he, he spared the bear's life, uh, because it was unsportsmanlike to shoot the bear, Roosevelt asked his friend to slit the bear open with a, with a hunting knife, and they killed it that way, and then they ate it. Um, over the next several days at their campsite. So that was out there at the time. And of course, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, he's not some sort of PETA activist. He's a, he's a hunter. He's out there hunting bears. Um, so that all sort of made sense. And it was more about the honor in, in the way he was putting this bear out of its misery rather than, you know, making its killing a triumphant thing. But when you read about the teddy bear story now, that, that detail, you know, falls out of the story. It just doesn't fit with this uh, idea of compassion that I think the rest of the story communicates. And this cartoon that made the incident famous um, and inspired the children's toy has a really cute bear in it. Big-eyed, Mickey Mouse ears. I mean, to have slit its throat sounds pretty horrendous. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. It looks like a teddy bear. <laughs> Meanwhile, though, not all animals proved as cuddly. I mean, there was a, an attempt to um, do what uh, Theodore Roosevelt and his entourage did with the, the bear uh, with another American species. Yeah, I mean, you have to understand that um, you know the, the invention of the teddy bear also really was the invention of mass-produced toys. So you, now you had a whole industry, uh, and they wanted to keep the rally going. But they thought, who's going to want to play with the teddy bear after Roosevelt's out of office? So when Roosevelt's successor came in, William Howard Taft came along, uh, boosters of Taft's tried to give a, a kind of answer to the teddy bear for Taft. And it, it launched at a dinner in Georgia when, when Taft was served a traditional uh, southern dish called possum and taters, which was uh, just a, an opossum, a roasted opossum with potatoes. And their idea was the billy possum. It was going to be a stuffed possum. And it had a very brief uh, but, but sort of a tragic uh, life in the marketplace. Uh, it didn't exactly take off. <laughs> it was named Billy for William Taft, right? Right. Um, and uh, a company, the Georgia Billy Possum Company? Right. They were up and running. to mass manufacture it and... Absolutely. There was, you know, during his inauguration, I saw stories about how they had, this company had distributed billy possums in the, in the crowd. There were um, toy stores in, around the country that you know, were stocking these things and advertising this as you know, the, the next big plaything that your children will be uh, sleeping with for the next four years. Um, so it was a real a fit of possum mania, uh, which you know, just didn't really last. I mean, within a few months, uh, the, the billy possum had just completely disappeared. It just was not embraced at all. So this tells us a lot, though, about our relationship to animals. I mean, some species are cool and charismatic, big ones, noble ones, quote-unquote, right? Pretty ones. And then there's animals like the possum and other unsavory, so-called unsavory varmints who don't make the grade, right? Even if it is the only American marsupial, right? 
<laughs> I mean, it's more special than a bear, I think, in that regard. I suppose you could argue that. You'd, I don't know. You'd have a hard time convincing anyone. But yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. And that's why I bring up this whole story in the book is, um, you know, there's, there's actually a lot of research about why we like certain animals and why we don't. And some of it, it just comes down to physicality. You know, it's hard to get past that big meaty naked tail on an opossum um you know we, we tend to like animals that have round faces uh kind of roly-poly bearing basically that look like human human children um but beyond that there's also just a kind of a a cultural uh, dimension to a lot of this um you know and as i was saying with with the bear uh you know we tend to empathize with animals once that we've neutralized their threat and it's when you know, they rebound sometimes and they start challenging us again that we can turn on a dime and start to feel really threatened and, and vilify them again. So we've been back and forth, for instance, with the wolf a lot, haven't we? Absolutely. That's a big story right now in the northern part of the country. You've got, you know, wolf populations rebounding and uh, real vitriol coming, you know, toward the animals from ranchers and other people who just don't want to have to live around them. Um, there, There's the cute factor, as you just mentioned, or the anthropomorphic factor, there's also the rarity factor. I mean, possums did okay in the human world, right? They're doing great, like, uh, you know, raccoons and squirrels and Norway rats and cockroaches and kudzu and a lot of other so-called pest species, or synanthropes is the technical term, right? Right. They live not symbiotically, but they live in harmony. They live alongside us. They live alongside yeah. us. Yeah. But if the possum had gone extinct, we'd be super nostalgic about it, I suspect. What's, it's amazing what rarity can do. Um, you know, I write in the book uh, about a butterfly called the Lang's Metal Mark Butterfly, which lives, you know, right here in Antioch in between San Francisco and Sacramento on just a tiny scrap of land with you know, industrial facilities all around it and a waste transfer station. Um, you know, no one knows about this butterfly, and it's, you know, hard to find lots of people who care. But the people who do know about it, you know, that's that's what this butterfly has going for it, the fact that it is just on the edge of extinction. Um, and suddenly it becomes more special uh, just by just by being rare. Um, a woman in Southern California who's breeding these butterflies in captivity uh, compared it to a kind of rest, you know, chain restaurants. You know, you don't want to live in a world where it's all just Applebee's. You know, you want to you want to be able to see some things that are more like the mom and pop roadside uh, diners. Is it a pretty butterfly? You've seen them. What's it look like? Yeah, you know, I found during the course of this book, I'm not too easily swayed by the beauty of animals. I mean, I think all animals are kind of awesome. But, um, uh, you know, this butterfly to me, I say in the book, it, it sort of just looked like a smaller monarch at first. But, you know, probably just in the way of an uninitiated person, you know, would think all butterflies look like a monarch if they're black and orange. Um, I suppose it's a pretty butterfly. It's hard to find a not pretty butterfly, right? You bastard. Yeah. You bastard. <laughs> I hate butterflies. No. Um, no, yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty butterfly. I mean, I can't say it's, it's any prettier than more common butterflies, but, um, but yeah, it's a butterfly. It flutters around. It's got nice colors. It's got a lot going for it. Well, you hung out with people who really care about this butterfly. Uh, there is this nature reserve, as you say, near or in Antioch. In Antioch, yeah. And the butterfly is sort of its signature species. There's a few other endangered or rare species there. Yes? There's some plants. Some yeah. plants, right. We tend to care less about plants. Yeah, I didn't move. really give plants a time of day in this book. So right, I'm, you don't I'm even... guilty of that too, yeah. Yeah, but butterflies, because they are pretty and because they are the stuff of fairy tales and little, usually little girls, not little boys... Uh, face painting and stuff like that, right? Sure. Um, we we tend to care more about them than, say, you know, some nasty worm or, you know, a moth, a gray kind of nondescript moth. Butterfly, you know, gets more glory. But but you write about the struggle or the contradictions that come up when trying to save this, this creature. 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, the the overarching truth here is that you know we're living in a time. You know, some scientists call it conservation reliance. When species that are going to survive, the vast majority of them are going to survive because we're putting in the legwork to kind of prop them up in in place. Because the threats against them right now are just escalating too fast, and they're they're too enormous. Um, so at, at Antioch Dunes, which is this wildlife refuge where where the butterfly lives, you know, it used to be really large, sprawling sand dunes. And starting in 1906, after the San Francisco earthquake, a lot of that sand started being mined out for bricks to rebuild the city, and it just kept going and going to the point now where there's really nothing that looks like a, a recognizable sand dune there. And that upsets the whole ecosystem. That you know, The plants that the butterfly needs to lay its eggs on and, and eat, uh, it can't compete against weeds. And so the butterfly is just a loser in that situation. So now we've got you know, Fish and Wildlife Service employee, a really great guy who spends most of his year just out there pulling weeds, spraying, you know, trying to plant new uh, uh, stands of this buckwheat that the butterfly needs, just getting the property ready for the butterfly, trying to groom it the way the butterfly needs it. And then you've got uh, Jana Johnson down in Southern California at Moore Park College breeding the butterflies uh, in, in what's basically a lab, but it's sort of a ramshackle lab uh, where she's got you know plastic containers rigged up around plants. And then she brings the butterflies up to, to Antioch, drives them up in these containers, and sort of sets the larva around on the leaf as though she were a butterfly you know, laying her eggs. And uh, it's a completely artificial situation at this point. And certainly no sense at this point that this butterfly will ultimately flourish without our help? I don't think there's any chance. I think, you know, the, the people working on the project can see that right away. Um, you know, it's just not going to run on its own the way it used to. This is an ecosystem that, you know, all this ecological machinery that, that kept the butterfly there is just gone. Um, and so we have to step in and, and, you know, manually override that, that machinery. Hmm. I think it's time for a song. Okay. <laughs> If it weren't for the birds, remember my pet, the balance of nature would be upset. The insects of the world would surely double, and the people of the world would be in trouble. This is Marais and Miranda from an old album called um, Nature Songs. I'm going to get that album. Actually, my mom, a progressive school teacher, sang that to me when I was a kid. Wow. That was a common idea, the balance of nature, that the importance of species is that they perform some vital ecological function, and you pull out that one, say, card from the House of Cards, and the whole thing comes tumbling down. So if the Lang's metal mark butterfly dies off, is something else going to go and set off a chain reaction? Yeah, I don't think so. I think that's a really, you know, the balance of nature idea is a really nice idea. And I'm not saying it's it's not true, but it's definitely not true universally. Um, or if it is true in the case of the butterfly, it's just far too late. I mean, there's no balance there. You take the butterfly out now, really, I can't see anything happening. Um, you know, the, con- the conservationists, environmentalists, they, they like to talk about that a lot, you know, this idea of spaceship Earth. Um, you know, we're pulling rivets out of the ship and you can only pull so many before you crash. Um, but, uh, you know, I think two things. One is that we're well beyond that point in in, in a lot of places. Um, things are not balanced. 
so where does that leave us now? And and the second thing is that uh, you know the balance of nature it never really includes people. Uh, we have a way of looking at these systems as if you know we don't exist, and then when we do uh, recognize that we exist, we see ourselves um, you know only in the negative that that whatever we're doing to the places is unnatural. Um, you know, we can only leave fingerprints on these things. We can't, you know, it's, it's, it's illegitimate somehow what, what we do. So I don't know if that's really the most helpful idea. I mean, it's definitely true. You know, we can see that it's true because we can see places where we have pulled those cards out of the deck and we have seen the, you know, things collapse. Um, but is it helpful in every situation? I really don't think so. Well, you wouldn't deny that we change uh, on a vast scale, Earth's climate, Earth's, uh, ecology, Probably more quickly than any other species. Without uh, a doubt. Yeah, and, and that, that itself, of course, can cause disruptions in systems that are out there. The question, I guess, is, is the right approach to attach oneself to, say, a species and fight against all odds to keep it going? Uh, you looked at three species in particular in this book, um, and I want you to talk about another one, the whooping crane. This is a species where people you know, have really committed themselves to saving an otherwise probably doomed species, right? We were down to how many in the 1940s? In the 1940s, there were between 20 and 30 birds left. Um, some in captivity. Some right? in captivity. There's there's arguments about the exact numbers, but, you know, the number that gets repeated a lot is 16 wild birds uh, left at, at a minimum, yeah. And, and millions of dollars later, where are we? Uh, well, millions of dollars, but also, you know, seven or eight generations, I guess, you know, since since the early 1900s, really, we have uh, 300 birds in, in the wild and, and many more in captivity. I mean, I, I may seem a little coarse putting a price tag on it, but a lot of human effort later, we've got 300 birds. 300 wild and then additional ones. Oh, sorry, yeah. sorry. But you look closely at what it takes to keep these birds going. <laughs> I didn't know much about it. Tell us about it. Yeah, well, Operation the, Migration. Right. The project I looked at is actually about trying to build, basically from scratch, a second population of whooping cranes. You know, there's one wild population in the West, and they're trying to, to get a second one up and running in the East to give the species as a whole better odds of survival. And what that involves is uh, breeding birds in captivity, but then putting them out in the wild and teaching them to migrate. Uh, normally, a bird would learn to migrate from its parents, but these birds' parents are back in the lab. Uh, so uh, a nonprofit called Operation Migration has stepped in, you know, working in a partnership with a lot of other organizations and, and government agencies, and they basically train the birds to fly behind ultralight airplanes, which are these small, almost like a hang glider with a you know little um, cab hanging underneath it. And they teach the birds to fly behind these planes, and then train them all summer, and then in the fall they set out from Wisconsin for Florida. Uh, and they stop along the way every 25, 50 miles uh, to stop for the night. And then once they get to Florida, the birds are on their own. And, and just by doing that one trip, the birds can learn uh, the route so that they will now fly back and forth between Wisconsin and Florida on their migrations every year for the rest of their lives. Well, this reminds me of one of the major points of your book, and I'm going to quote you here. Gradually, America's management of wild animals has evolved, maybe devolved, into a surreal kind of performance art. We train condors not to perch on power lines. We slip plague vaccine to ferrets. We shoot barred owls to make room in the forest for spotted owls. We monitor pygmy rabbits with infrared cameras and military drones. We carry migrating salamanders across busy roads in our palms. So your point is that we're becoming more like, you know, tenders of gardens or zookeepers, and we're almost doing a form of animal husbandry with these endangered species. Um, to what end? 
that's a good question. I think the main thing is I don't think we really know anymore. You know, I think that we've we've been involved in a lot of these recoveries for so long, and just the idea of fighting to save endangered species for so long. You know, it's been 40 years this year since the Endangered Species Act, and that most of that time it's just been a very defensive, um, kind of frantic work. You know, the the goal is defined in the negative: don't let it go extinct. Um, and I don't think I think we've sort of lost track of what we're trying to save and why exactly. Um, I'm not saying there's not a, a case to save these things. I'm just saying uh, we don't seem to really be able to articulate it very well. And I, I think actually that the the argument for saving these things is is maybe more aesthetic or emotional than we're than we're really ready to admit, or at least the the, the people doing this work uh, generally admit. Um, they like to make scientific arguments about the balance of nature or you know ecosystem services, and you know many times those things are true. They're valid arguments. Um, but when you look at the complexity of this work and and just how long some of these recoveries are going to have to go on, uh, I think what you're really left with is that maybe this work is a is a, a demonstration to ourselves. Maybe it's it's a way for us to tell ourselves what kind of people we want to be or what kind of citizens of the earth we want to be, and that it brings you know I found from talking to individual people and sort of collecting their stories, each one of them completely different and unexpected, um, that it brings a value to to human life to work on behalf of these species, independent of how successful it is actually for the species itself. What is it um, that one of the people who work with uh, whooping cranes said to you? It's not an animal. I think the exact quote is, it's, it's not a bird project, it's a people project. The birds are an excuse for doing something good. Now, I can hear a lot of my environmental friends in our audience cringing at what we've said so far, belittling attempts to save otherwise doomed species. But you're not saying you're cool with extinction, which, by the way, is happening at an extremely rapid rate right now, and you wouldn't disagree with that. You have, no, some, no. You have some mortifying numbers. But you're saying that it's really hard to, to cite a reason. Now, one another argument, there are arguments that are uh, economical in some cases, you know, like bats. Uh, save bats because they keep the pests down, right? Sure. Save bees because they pollinate you know, agricultural Absolutely. crops, right? We can do that with a lot of species, but not with all of them, certainly. Right. I'm just, I, I don't think I'm belittling any of this work at all, actually. I think I, I really came to admire all these people, uh, you know, incredibly deeply. Uh, the closer that I got to them and the more I watched them work, um, I just think I realized that there's really no universal way to talk about why saving species is a good thing. You know, the, the, each case is its own case. And I think the only universal I found is that you know, here we are living on a planet in this time of of extreme change and very worrying change. I mean, I came into this project uh, feeling extremely worried. I just had a daughter. I was worried about the kind of planet she was going to you know, be left to live on. Um, and when you're confronted with that kind of overwhelming, uh, you know, upheaval uh, and the anxiety that comes from it, uh, one thing to do is to just sort of grab onto the problem in any way you can and just you know, work like hell to, to make it better. And that's what the people that I met were doing. Um, you know, they weren't always doing it incredibly effectively. Uh, they sometimes didn't even really have a perfect understanding of what the problem they were trying to solve was. Uh, but there's just something really beautiful and very human about that act and that gesture to try to preserve uh, just a tiny bit of beauty uh, that you see vanishing. Um, we've talked about cases where it seems, if not futile, it certainly seems hugely expensive. Uh, you know, the whooping, whooping crane, I think you'd agree, is an amazing bird. 
but only 300 or so, you said, outside of captivity at what I assume is a large cost in human effort and all of that. And we still don't see them out there in the in the flocks that, you know, they used to exist in. Then the, the butterfly that seems to only be able to exist in this small environment and probably never will be able to repopulate its old habitats because they're gone, right? Mm. Um, there are some successes out there, though. I mean, if I look at my area on the coast. Um, I can walk out any day and just hear sea lions barking, or I can walk to the shore and with good odds see a sea otter out there, you know, cracking a muscle on its chest, right? Those were driven nearly to extinction, too. And simply by stopping the slaughter for fat or oil or fur, right, we've seen those those populations bounce way back. Same thing with elephant seals. Absolutely. Now there's over 100,000 of them. There used to be, they were down to what? Like yeah, I don't some know. tiny, was, tiny exactly. number. So, so there are cases where we've allowed you know species to come back, and they've come back swimmingly. <laughs> no pun intended, <laughs> right? And they're there. Now, I mean, I, I guess it could be argued that ecologically – why do we really need – well, I'll tell you why. I can actually make an argument for the sea otter. By eating the shellfish, they've allowed the kelp forest to Absolutely. come back, right? And kelp forests, in turn, are these breeding grounds for fish and all kinds of species. That's a perfect example of the kind of real ecological effects that preserving species has. Yeah. Right, right. Though maybe I couldn't make as good an argument for the elephant seal. Well, I don't know. I'm not too familiar yeah. with the elephant seal's situation. But, I, I mean, I guess that's what I was saying is that – it shouldn't have to come down to something so rational. I mean, there is something extremely, and I think gorgeously irrational, about working as hard as people do to save these species. Um, that should be celebrated, actually. Um, that is a wonderful thing about human beings, that we are willing to devote ourselves to a problem that doesn't actually seem like it can be solved in any kind of, um, you know, tied up with a bow at the end of the day kind of way. So I just think, you know, why put pressure on yourself to have to justify it in these kind of very, you know, empirical terms. Ah, but uh, you know the answer, John. You know the answer. It's because not everybody feels this way. Of course. Because there are large numbers of people who think this is stupid, and to prevent the, you know, construction of a shopping mall or a power plant or prevent people from fishing to their heart's content or hunting to their heart's content in the name of preserving, you know, a species is not only stupid but wasteful and uh, hurts us. I absolutely understand. I mean, yeah. I think in a lot of cases it's really easy to empathize with people who think that. You know, why should the, the housing development that people, you know, want to live in not be able to be there because there's a frog that lives there? Um, I'm not writing those arguments off. You know, that's where it gets really complicated and really messy is when, you know, our needs conflict with the, the needs of the animals. Uh, I just think there's a value in taking it back to a sort of a more uh, baseline point of compassion before all that happens. And just trying to say, you know, this is kind of the fight that we're in right now. You know, we're trying to figure all this out. And we've gone in, you know, in the history of this country, we've gone from a mindset where uh, we are trying to exterminate everything in our way to the point where now a good portion of the population believes in, uh, you know, propping the species up and saving them sometimes to the point of absurdity. And that's a huge shift in in a way of thinking about our place, you know, on on the planet. Um, so yeah, I I think in in all honesty, and this may upset people too, but I think in a lot of these cases where you have people arguing, you know, for the the mall or what you know the farm or whatever it is against the species, I think we have to be open to the to the fact that sometimes they're they're they should win. You know, that sometimes we we should be okay with saying, you know, well, we just can't make room for this thing right here. The problem is is that we live in a in a time where so many things are disappearing, and it's such an uphill battle that the environmentalists fighting for those animals see every 
battle as a battle of principle and that each one, you know, if you were to give up on one, where would it end? Um, and that's sort of the deadlock we're in right now. Yeah, and, and I also think that um, there's going to be a certain amount of discomfort from some folks about your book because it does say, look, these rational utilitarian arguments don't add up. Confess that what you're doing is sentimental. It's to preserve an image of the world as a wild and exotic place that you're attached to, maybe because you grew up with those stories. This is where your daughter Isla comes into the story. Um, or maybe it's because we humans are always fighting against loss. We're born into a world that disappears on us. Our friends disappear. We're going to disappear. And what we're doing is this quixotic thing to try to cling to, you know, something that is ephemeral, right? But when you say that in the halls of Congress or in some government agency or to a town hall full of ranchers or farmers or oil people, you're going to get shouted down, right? Yeah, I think I'm pretty realistic about that. I, I mean, and I think what you're so saying is... So the aesthetic is, argument doesn't play in America. Well, I think what you're saying is true. I think, I think that, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to disagree with anything you're saying, but I think that there's also an, another element beyond what you're saying that's a little less touchy-feely and a little less psychoanalytical, uh, which is that there's just a case to be made that having a diversity of things around, even if it's not valuable in a um, left brain scientific way where you can point to certain ecological consequences and say, thank God we had the such and such here. Um, having a diversity of things around living in a world uh, where you can see things, you know, in different places, uh, where everything doesn't look the same, where it's not just kudzu and rats and jellyfish in the <laughs> ocean, um, that is valuable. You know, we, uh, I think we should try to preserve it for its own sake in the same way that we would preserve anything else we like about the country. Um, you know, a, a historic building or... Uh, I think what we're really doing is just latching onto things that we think are beautiful and trying to preserve that beauty. And, and I think your book makes the point um, via your daughter, Isla, you thought about her relationship to animals, which is that of a child's, you know, world populated by largely imaginary animals, right? And you suggest that maybe part of what we're holding on to is that, I don't want to say childish, I'd rather say an innocent relationship to animals or, or primordial relationship to animals, you know, um, that the adult world is trampling on. Yeah, well, I would, I would maybe say childlike. Childlike, and okay. And I think that's... That's great. I but mean, that seems to diminish it somehow. Well, okay, then I wouldn't use that term. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, th I mean, I think that I, as an adult, you know, populate a world of mostly imaginary animals. Uh, you know, I see some raccoons from time to time and a bunch of birds in my neighborhood. Uh, but I don't see polar bears and black bears and alligators and, um, you know, a lot of the animals that, that I went off to, to write about. Um, so, I, you know, I just think that you know, we're one species on a planet filled with all these other species. That's a pretty spectacular thing. It's uh, it's the, similar to the argument people make for space travel. You know, we're just one little tiny part of the universe, and, you know, shouldn't we be out there exploring? I mean, obviously a lot of people think that that's not worth the money either, um, but I think that people don't really like to talk about wildlife conservation in the same way. I mean, I think what I'm really just trying to do is, you know, respect conservation efforts for what they are, but also just suggest that there's an element to them that's beyond environmentalism. That if we really want to solve, you know, hardcore environmental problems, and we're facing a lot of them, you know, saving the whooping crane is really not the best way to do it. Uh, but saving the whooping crane has this other level of value um, that may make it worth doing, you know, also or, or on its own. What about your third species? We haven't even mentioned um, the one you talk about first in your book, which is the polar bear. 
Yeah. Um, you spent um, some time up in Churchill, Manitoba, basically on the banks of the Hudson Bay, right, in Canada? Yeah. Uh, which bills itself as the polar bear capital of the world and has a kind of thriving tourist industry based on that. Polar bears, tell us about their likely fate in our changing global climate. Right, yeah, so it's no secret. I mean, they've sort of become the icons of, of climate change. You know, they are the victim that people tend to think of. Um, you know, it's almost cliche at this point. And I think that's what really made me want to write about them. You know, how does an animal get to be a cliche? Um, and especially how does an animal like the polar bear go in the span of about 30 years from being seen as a, you know, a bloodthirsty man-killer to this you know, delicate drowning victim uh, that's falling through slushy ice? Um, and it's because of climate change. And, and you know, it's, it's maybe a little too complicated to go into here, but, you know, I go into the book in, in really just trying to trace how that happened. And it really comes down to a kind of savvy environmentalists and, uh, you know, marketers even. And uh, uh, there was a, a convoluted legal uh, case uh, involved that all sort of brought the polar bear to this visibility. And uh, people just uh, went gaga for it. You know, it really, it really drew in people's emotions. Um, when I went to Churchill, it was sort of at a time when it was easy to wonder whether people were really paying attention to polar bears anymore, if they had just receded back into the kind of noise that um, environmentalists had first hoped they would, they would cut through. Um, and while you were there, you saw the degree of attention that's being focused on them. Martha Stewart came in by helicopter <laughs> shooting something for, what, the Discovery Channel? It was, she had a show on the Hallmark Channel. Oh, Hallmark Channel. It was like an afternoon talk show, yeah. About polar bears. Um, well, you got to see them close up. Um, you took the tour. Uh, did they do something for you? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I say in the book that you know, the, so you go out of Churchill and, and with these tour companies, and they have these really mammoth, uh, you know, all-terrain vehicles that are just almost impossible to describe. They've got monster truck tires, and they're almost like little mobile ski lodges for the for the tourists. And the the big kind of signature thing that everyone wants to happen, which is in one of the tour companies' logos, is for these bears to rear up on the side of the vehicle and sort of paw at it. And they're doing this probably because, you know, they're a little bored. They smell the food inside. They're going to check out these vehicles. Um, but having that kind of one-to-one -one encounter, people find, you know, really spiritual in some cases. What about you? What about you? I, I didn't really, I thought that was cool. Uh, what I thought was actually much more moving um, was was when the bear would turn around and then just sort of disappear into this, you know, huge white, you know, completely white landscape. And just to have that sense of scale and to see it sort of padding away, uh, you know, it's just something I'll, I'll never forget. You don't want a world without polar bears. No, I, I don't. Um, but if the earth keeps warming and uh, you and I being uh, men of science, we can both agree that it will. Yes. The bear, well, doomed may be too strong a word, but most of them are going to starve to death, right? They do all their eating and feeding, most of it, on the ice, catching seals. As the ice disappears, they're going to starve. Yeah, some will starve. You know, females will slow down reproduction. Basically, it's it's just going to all grind to a halt. Um, you know, we're at the point where it's not quite, you know, the, all these projections, you know, show that it's not quite certain that all the polar bear populations will disappear. But, you know, unless some real, you know, political decisions start being made, I, th I think that's probably an inevitability. And then it will be up to us to keep them alive via somewhat artificial means, feeding them maybe, you know, creating a wildlife park somewhere where polar bears continue to live with our intervention. If we choose to do that, yeah. I mean, there's some discussion right now. This this area in Churchill is actually it's the one of the southernmost bear populations. So they're already living in a kind of unorthodox way for polar bears where the Hudson Bay 
is not frozen all year round. So unlike other bears, they've actually got to live on land and uh, in a kind of a, a waking hibernation uh, where they can't really eat seals uh, for, for much of the year, and then they get back on the ice as soon as they can and hunt. So they're going to probably be one of the first uh, bear populations to go just because they're already sort of at the edge of their, uh, you know, their capacity to exist. And there's some discussion right now about, you know, what's going to happen, you know, what, what happens in a year when the bay is open water for much longer than usual in a kind of a freak year. Should we be shipping roadkill up to Churchill and, you know, spreading it around for the bears? And you see a real divide between the climate change activists who are up there trying to use the bear as a canary in the coal mine for this problem and the locals who just really like the bears and think, well, we got to feed these bears. we got to help them. And who, by the way, many of whom at least don't believe in, in global warming. Yeah, it was very hard to find a person living in Churchill who believed in, in climate change. Amazing. I'm amazed simply because I think at that latitude, the evidence over a lifespan, a normal human lifespan, is pretty strong. Well, many of them, you know, I mean, they're, they're not ignorant. I mean, many of them have seen changes, you know, I mean, they're very attuned to what's going on in the landscape, and they've seen a lot of changes themselves, but there's just sort of an underlying belief that this is part of a natural cycle, uh, yes. that it will be corrected. Not human um, caused. Yeah, so it's yeah. just sort of a, there's another ideology there that's, that, you know, competes against the science. Right. You know, um, the kind of preservation efforts we've been talking about, you know, have limited goals. I mean, um, you know, in the case of whooping cranes, it's to at least keep some remnant of that species alive. Same thing with the Lang's metal mark butterfly. Um, but there's some people out there who've thought a lot bigger. Tell us about the Pleistocene rewilding. Sure. Yeah, so this was an idea that, that um, came up in 2005. Um, a, a guy who was a graduate student at the time named Josh Donlin. Uh, you know, led the publication of a, of a paper in, in a scientific journal proposing Pleistocene rewilding. And basically it was trying to solve a problem, and it was trying to solve this problem of shifting baseline syndrome, which just means, you know, when we talk about things aren't, you know, as good as they used to be, when when are we talking about the used to be? When when was that? You know, we, we've got more bald eagles than we did 40 years ago, but we've got significantly less bald eagles than we did 100 years before that. Um, and you can just sort of see all these different baselines, you know, completely subjective ones, you know, each one behind the last. Uh, and you just really don't know where you, where you can stand on. What is, you know, how many eagles should there be? So this Pleistocene rewilding paper made the case that, you know, at the end of the Pleistocene era, about 13,000 years ago or so, um, there used to be these giant animals walking around North America, you know, humongous beavers and dire wolves and mammoths. And around the end of the Pleistocene, they just sort of all started to die off, um, maybe because humans hunted them to extinction. That's one of the leading theories. And so this paper said, you know, once they all vanished, the continent was completely out of whack. You know, that they had effects on their ecosystems, and now we're just dealing kind of with the, the disheveled side effects of them being gone. So let's bring them back. Uh, you know, we can't really bring them back, but we could bring, uh, you know, elephants from Africa. We could bring giant land tortoises. We could import them all and set them up on little preserves or private land and uh, kind of bring that that element of North America's ecology back. You say little preserves. You don't mean, you know, trying to turn... Uh America into the, the Serengeti or something. Well, it would be more kind of like a Jurassic Park kind of thing. You know, you'd have a landowner with, you know, however many thousand acres and you could have these animals there. Uh, you accused me earlier of being psychoanalytic. I'm still smarting from that. I'm but sorry. Now, now well, you accused me of belittling uh, <laughs> conservationists. No, I, no, I was playing devil's advocate <laughs> okay. uh, on behalf of listeners out there who might think that's what we're saying. Um, but I'm going to get religious now and not psychoanalytic and say, are we really trying to get ourselves back to the garden in the words of Joni Mitchell? 
I think that's part of it. I mean, I think it's hard not to see that. Like I was saying before, so much of the way we interact with, you know, animals and nature, it's emotional. I mean, how could it not be? To see what what's going on now and not feel some kind of longing to not believe that there was a better time or, or something where everything made more sense, um, I think is really difficult. And so I think it's those kind of personal motivations that do inform a lot of this work. And I find that really amazing. And, you know, especially you know, at points in the book, getting down to individual people's stories of how they came to be involved in this work. Um, you know, whether it was, you know, a woman who going through a divorce, uh, you know, started breeding butterflies sort of to prove to herself that, you know, and now she's a single mom and this was just one thing she wanted to test herself with. Um, you know, examples like that where you just see that how idiosyncratic this is. Um, I think it's, we should honor that, you know, we shouldn't, that shouldn't cheapen it to say that, um, you know, oh, it's emotional or something like that. Well, yeah, so what isn't emotional in life? That's what I was going to say to you. What isn't, when you get right down to it, the idea that rationality can actually be applied to any big human question, any moral issue, pure and, pure and simple rationality, I'm not sure that it can. Well, yeah, and that's the epigraph to the book is from Star Trek, is from this, you know, the Star Trek Four, the one with the whales, right, where, where Spock says, uh, you know, it's not logical to drive a species to extinction, and the scientist shoots back, well, whoever said the, the human species was, was logical. Um, I think that's it, and that's why, you know, that's why I call it a book about looking at people, looking at animals. Because that, to me, is much more interesting than the animals themselves. It's it's the kind of human dramas that the animals set in motion and the, the ways they make us think. Uh, you know, the, there's lots of books about endangered species. Um, you know, I've read a lot of them, but um, they seem to leave all that out. You know, I mentioned earlier in the interview, John, that this book kind of records your own struggle with these issues, uh, which is quite interesting. Um, and I think there's a, a passage in your book that, sort of spells that out a little more. I'd like you to read from it. Sure. This is uh, toward the very end of the book when I've just gone and visited uh, Brooke Pennypacker, who's one of the guys who flies the airplanes in front of the whooping cranes. And they, I'd, I'd seen them do a whole migration, which was just really grueling for a lot of, lot of really crazy reasons. Um, and then this is the next fall as he's, he's alone on this uh, old pig farm in Wisconsin training the next class of cranes. And all sort of the bigger problems and the, the uncertainty around the project um, that had been dogging them all last fall. It just seems to have fallen away, and he's just complaining again about you know the little things like the how the place smelled like dead pigs and um, that the birds weren't behaving. And he says the little picture is a whole lot easier to deal with than the big picture. That's for sure. And I write, you could argue that this is the crux of a terrible problem. In the end, I can't say I'm optimistic about the future of wildlife. The stories of the polar bear, the butterfly and the whooping crane had at times even lowered my confidence in our ability to see the problem clearly. There's a fluidity to nature that's not easy to recognize or accept, and climate change will only accelerate and distort those changes. There's also a fluidity to how we feel about nature, the way our baselines subjectively reset and will keep resetting far into the future, while in the background the empirical damage piles up. These are destabilizing thoughts. I still don't know what to do with them, but neither does anyone else, it seems, and so their weight has a way of compressing conservation down into a nearsighted exercise, one that can be pursued only by focusing on the little picture of the present and by blocking out the yawning uncertainty that moment is adrift in. Then again, it was people's capacity to focus on that little picture that I found so invigorating everywhere I went, and to keep refocusing on it, having reached a place of devastating pessimism to return somehow to a place of not optimism exactly, but at least relative equanimity. Maybe what conservation tries is sometimes misguided or futile, 
but there's something deep and blameless in the trying itself. It's a spark we can feel defined by as humans and should point out to our kids. Well, John, I was feeling pretty destabilized there for a moment, but you restabilized me. Well, I'm glad to restabilize you, I guess. <laughs> Thanks a lot, man. Yeah, thank you. Um, and why don't we finish up by um, going out with a piece of music from the album that was inspired by your book. Sure. Uh, there's a band up in Portland called Black Prairie, who I've known a, a couple of, of them for a number of years. Some of them also play in the band The, the Decemberists. Um, and, you know, we just sort of got to talking around the time they were starting Black Prairie and I was starting the book. Uh, wouldn't it be cool to kind of write uh, almost a musical score to some of the scenes and characters that I encountered? Um, I didn't really know if that was going to work or what that meant, but then all of a sudden, once they'd read the book, I started getting these MP3s in my email, and uh, it was pretty outrageous. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I should pick a song then? Yeah, if you'd like okay. to. Okay. Uh, we can hear the Dawn Departure, Jefferson County, which is a, a song kind of scoring one of the last real scenes of the book when I'm uh, at the end of the Operation Migration's trip to Florida when they're at sort of their last stop. And uh, they just, you know, really beleaguered and had a really tough, tough autumn. Uh, but they're in Jefferson County, Florida, setting out on their last leg of the migration, just sort of getting themselves up at dawn and, uh, you know, getting in their trikes and uh, setting out to get the birds uh, on their way to their, their winter home. A trike is an ultralight plane. Yes, sorry. That they used to lead these whooping cranes through their first migration. All right, well, let's hear that. And the name of it again is? Uh, dawn Departure, Jefferson County. Great. Thanks again, John. Thank you. John Moalem's new book is Wild Ones, a sometimes dismaying, weirdly reassuring story about looking at people, looking at animals in America. And uh, in closing here, I just wanted to acknowledge that uh, while John and I mentioned a few of the reasons that people are fighting to save endangered species, I know that our list was hardly exhaustive. Uh, for instance, we did not mention the whole animal rights movement, which questions whether people are even entitled to exploit or kill or displace other species. And then there's uh, something maybe even deeper at work. I was reminded when thinking of all of this of an observation from a well-known essay by the critic John Berger. The essay is called, Why Look at Animals? And here's what he wrote. Animals offer man a companionship which is different from any offered by human exchange. Different because it is a companionship offered to the loneliness of man as a species. I've always been struck by that suggestion that our species, no matter how populous or pervasive we become, would be a lonely thing if we only had ourselves to look to. Well, that is it for this week's show. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week. Do check us out online at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com, or go to iTunes and subscribe. And if you do that, take a moment to rate the show, if you'd be so kind. Music